not too long ago, there was a, uh, I don't know, campaign by the uh, Milk Producers of America uh, that uh, advertised Got Milk. Uh, I don't know how long ago that was. feels like a few years ago, but probably decades ago. And um, uh, I'd like to uh, uh, not talk about milk, but I'd like to talk about uh, integrity uh, in a similar light. Uh, do you have integrity? I don't know if we think about integrity for integrity's sake. We talk about it a lot. You can't hardly uh, do much in life without thinking about integrity. We don't know that we think about it um, in and of itself. In uh, Psalm 25 that uh, Mike just read in the very next to last verse, David says, let integrity and uprightness preserve me. Integrity and uprightness preserve me. There's so many ways in which uh, our integrity will either preserve us or our lack thereof will demolish us altogether. And so I'd like to talk about a few things uh, as it relates to uh, integrity. Uh, I'd like to talk about the, the principle, what is integrity itself, a uh, biblical perspective. Um, then what is the, the challenge, if you will? What's the problem? Why is it difficult to have integrity? Uh, why are we talking about it at all? If it's a good thing, why, why doesn't everybody have it? Uh, and then we'll finish with a, a brief practical application. So the definition of integrity, uh, if you were to look at, um, uh, if you were to Google it, I suppose, in dictionary.com, uh, would provide this definition. It says, the quality of being honest and having strong moral principles, moral uprightness. That's what integrity is defined as being, the very first definition of integrity. Um, now, if you were to consult Kyle's unabridged dictionary, uh, it would have a similar but slightly different definition. Uh, I would define integrity um, perhaps a little more practically as doing the right thing when no one else is looking and when you, when you believe, no one else will ever find out. What do you do? How do you act when it's just between you, yourself, and I, so to speak? Or when you believe that no one will ever find out? It's fairly rare in this day and age that we do very many things that no one else ever knows about. Uh, it seems like um, uh, that's probably been true from the beginning of time. Uh, maybe particularly true now with the advent of technology, uh, but there's very little that we do. However, there's several things that we do that we don't think anyone will ever know about, or at least know much about. And there certainly are still some things that very much are just between you, yourself, and I, and of course God. And I'm referring, of course, to matters of the heart there. There are your motives of the heart uh, are still things that are very much uh, unknown to others. <clears throat> we see in um, uh, Proverbs chapter uh, 11 that the integrity of the upright will guide them. But the second part of that verse says, but the falseness of the treacherous will destroy them. The, up, the integrity of the upright will guide them but the falseness of the treacherous will destroy them. And so we can choose, as a matter of principle, what degree of integrity or lack thereof we will choose to have. And there are so many examples of this. Uh, I have on the screen Abraham Lincoln, a 
man I think is still known today as being a man who had integrity. He stuck by his principles, a uh, man who was honest, uh, honest uh, to his own hurt even. Um, and then a man uh, named Bertie Madoff, who some of you may have heard of, who was quite the opposite, who swindled and deceived to his own gain, much to the hurt of others. The gospel demands integrity. Think for a minute about the Sermon on the Mount, for example, in Matthew chapter 5. Matthew 5 and verse 27, it says, You have heard that it was said, You shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks on a woman to lust for her has committed adultery already in his heart. It is, like we talked about a moment ago, the matters of the heart that still are between you and God, right? There may be some outward actions that are rarely uh, concealed from others. I mean, there probably are some actions that you take. I suppose if you mow the grass somewhere, nobody may ever know or care. But there are very few things, I think, that you do outwardly that no one ever really knows much about. But there are a lot of things you do in your own heart that I suppose most people probably don't know about. That's the uh, kind of principle that God is looking for. God is looking for our hearts. It's committing adultery not in the act itself that is condemned, but even in the heart that is condemned, even in the mind that is condemned. God wants more than just our actions. He wants our heart. He wants the very principle by which we live. In the same vein, it's Joel 2 and verse 13 that says, And rend your heart and not your garments. It's not just the outward action that God wants. It's the heart that he wants. And the outward actions then will naturally follow. God knows that if he has your heart, if he has the intentions of your heart, if he has your motives, then he has all of you. And your actions will surely follow there. And so um, we could just end the lesson here. Uh, this is what everyone should have, and uh, we can walk away being glad that we'll be have more integrity going forward. Uh, but of course, uh, that would be to kind of gloss over the difficulty of why we don't have more integrity uh, as individuals and as a society. Some of you, I think probably a lot of you have uh, read Gary Henry's uh, book, Diligently Seeking God. And this is one excerpt from the book I found particularly helpful. But how is difficulty to be defined? It should be seen as any circumstance in which honor calls on us to think, say, or do something that requires extra effort. When the right thing and the easy thing are not the same thing, difficulty is what we face. I'll read that again. When the right thing and the easy thing are not the same thing, difficulty is what we face. And therein lies the challenge of integrity. We like to have integrity. We like to have good hearts and motives. We like to be consistent in how we think and what we say and in what we do. We like to be honest. We like to have moral uprightness until it becomes difficult to have that, until it begins to cost us something. And then we begin to rethink whether or not we really want to have integrity. We want to have what we want rather than what we know we should. There's probably a million ways we could kind of frame this. Uh, these, are the, uh, these are the ways I think that we face this problem on a somewhat practical level. Uh, we face a challenge um, to have integrity 
when no one else knows, or at least we believe no one else knows what we're doing or thinking. We face a challenge of integrity when everyone knows, when there's kind of a public moment in which you have to choose between right and wrong, between what you profess to be and what you actually are. And that poses a difficulty, right? It poses a challenge. Uh, then we have uh, integrity in the face of everything falling apart. Uh, when life hasn't gone well, we have this, what do we do now circumstance? Will we live with integrity or not? Uh, and then finally, we have a question or a challenge of our integrity when everything is going well. Now, I, I think that summarizes most cases uh, in which we'd have to face the challenge of integrity. And like I said, there's probably a million ways you can kind of divide up uh, ways to think about this. But these are just briefly the four ways I'd like for us to think about uh, the problem of having integrity. And I'll give you an example with each one of these. So what about when no one knows? Uh, when no one knows what's going on, um, how will you live with integrity? Uh, Joseph is perhaps an obvious example. I don't know that's a surprise to anyone. Uh, Joseph, from a young age, was sold, of course, into slavery by his own brothers. And he found himself in Egypt. And uh, he, uh, by the hand of God, it seems, and uh, surely by his own hard work as well, uh, became someone who was sought after in uh, Potiphar's house, who was a man of some significance. And uh, it was at that time that uh, opportunity knocked, so to speak. And in Genesis, um, uh, I guess I don't even have the chapter written down. Um, I guess I do here. 39 and verse 7, I think it is. Yeah, 39 and verse 7, it says, And it came about after these events that his master's wife looked with desire at Joseph, and she said, lie with me. Opportunity knocks, right? Now, you have to kind of think about this for a minute. Um, for a young man, I don't know how old exactly Joseph was, but uh, probably safe to assume he was either an upper teenager or, or a 20, in his early 20s, something around that age. Um, Joseph is faced with an opportunity uh, to have uh, a sexual relationship uh, with a woman uh, who we don't know a whole lot about, but presumably would have been a desirable woman. Opportunity knocks, right? And in this circumstance, if I were Joseph, it would be awfully easy for me to think about uh, all that no one else is ever going to find out about, right? You know, mom and dad probably be the first thing people you might think he would offend, but mom and dad are Man, they're a thousand miles away, literally a thousand miles away. Uh, they won't find out. I mean, after all, uh, Joseph's parents think that he's, well, I guess uh, Joseph's dad thinks that he is dead. Uh, there's nothing left of Joseph. Um, and, and so Joseph is, is far away from them. He's far away from the influence of any of the rest of his family. Uh, his brothers had sold him uh, into this slavery. Um, his uh, aunts and uncles, anybody else he might have had that were relatives, uh, to our knowledge, had no uh, interaction with Joseph. Uh, and uh, here is uh, Potiphar's wife propositioning him for a relationship he knows would be illicit. And so what does Joseph do when presumably no one would know or no one would find out? What do we do in that circumstance? And, of course, we see how Joseph reacts. This is why he is our example. Uh, in 8 and 9, the following two verses, he says, But he refused 
and said to his master's wife, Behold, with me here, my master does not concern himself with anything in the house, and he has put all that he owns in my charge. There is no one greater in this house than I, and he has withheld nothing from me except you, because you are his wife. How then could I do this great evil and sin against God? A lesser man would have reacted less wisely than Joseph. Joseph resolves not to pursue this relationship. And so he gives a very decisive response to Potiphar's wife that he would not engage in this relationship. He gives no opportunity, no room for this to continue. And I think it's really interesting and probably shows us a man who is following God when he doesn't say, well, what if your husband finds out? That would be the probably biggest fear in uh, most young man's mind uh, because, wow, Potiphar was a man of some significant means. Uh, that would be terrifying. But he doesn't blame it on that. He doesn't, he doesn't peg his doing what's right because he might be found out by her husband, Potiphar. Uh, he doesn't blame it on, uh, or doesn't, doesn't put it on his uh, parental units or his brothers. Uh, he doesn't put it on anything other than God. Did you notice that? He says, how then can I do this great evil and sin against God? God always knows. There's no circumstance Joseph would find himself in in which God would not know what he was engaged in. And so he resolutely rejects her proposition and therefore acts with integrity. But the opportunity is persistent. In the very next verse, it says, And it came about as she spoke to Joseph day after day that he did not listen to her to lie beside her or to be with her. Day after day. Now it happened one day that he went into the house to do his work, and none of the men of the household was there inside. And she caught him by his garment, saying, lie with me. You know, sin is often this way, isn't it? It's often this way, that we reject sin, but yet sin is persistent. Sin continuously knocks on our door. It, it continuously presents opportunity for us to choose the wrong path. You don't have to read very much at the beginning of Proverbs to see this is the case. It's a constant pursuit. We must constantly pursue what is right in order to avoid pursuing what is wrong. And so the opportunity is persistent for Joseph, but his reaction to it is equally persistent. In the second part of verse 12, he says, and he left his garment in her hand and fled and went outside. Whereas Joseph previously was resolute in his speaking to Potiphar's wife, here we see he is resolute in his decisive action to get away from this woman who was attempting to entice him to sin. And so when no one knows, or when presumably no one knows, we see Joseph as a man who acts with great integrity. Now what about when everyone knows? Um, you might say, well, that's easy, right? You know, it's hard to do what's right when you don't think anybody knows, but uh, surely, if everybody knows, then you're going to choose to do what's right. Uh, and 
you would think, well, that might be the case. You can envision some circumstances in which you're surrounded by people who uh, all want to see you do right things and good things. If you're surrounded perhaps by your family or by uh, church members or by uh, some folks who would uh, uh, call you on the carpet for not doing the right thing, you would say, man, having lots of people around, that's really uplifting. That's, that's helpful for me to hold to my integrity. Uh, in many cases, that may be the case, but that certainly is not always the case. Consider, for example, the example of the apostles. Uh, the apostles, at a time when Jesus most needed a friend, when Jesus most needed those who were closest to him, who supported him, the apostles found themselves as those who lacked integrity, specifically because of everyone around them. In Matthew chapter 25, or chapter 26 and verse 56, it says, Then all the disciples left him and fled. This was upon Jesus' arrest. Such a sad moment for the apostles. And we don't read about a whole, we don't really read about any of the other apostles until after Jesus' death, at least not in any significant way. But we do read about that one particular apostle, right? We read about Peter. And uh in many cases, in many ways, I think Peter may have been more noble. He at least came back to see what was going on, right? Uh, but even Peter experiences the downside of the influence of everyone else around him. In John 18 and verse 25, it says, Now Simon Peter was standing and warming himself. They said therefore to him, Are you not also one of his disciples? You, you are not also one of his disciples, are you? He denied it, saying, I am not. One of the slaves of the high priest, became, being a relative of the one whose ear Peter cut off, said, Did I not see you in the garden with him? Peter therefore denied it again, and immediately a cock crowed. Here, Peter, when everyone else knows, right? When he's surrounded by those who, um, uh, was surrounded by those who, when doing the right thing would be unpopular, he chooses to avoid doing the right thing. He fails to act with integrity because of those around him. He doesn't want to suffer the same consequence as what Jesus suffered, it would seem, on this occasion. He doesn't want to suffer the embarrassment of being an acquaintance of Jesus. And so he denies even knowing Jesus. How ashamed he would later feel when he recognized what he had done. In the early 1920s, just after the Second World War, <clears throat> there were a couple of uh, athletes in uh, Great Britain. Uh, they were particularly well known for their running abilities um, in short distances. They were uh, two athletes in particular, um, one of whom was named Eric Little, who some of you may have heard of. And Eric Little was um, the son of some Christian missionaries. He was uh, of Scottish descent, uh, but his parents had spent, I think, most of their lives, as I understand it, as missionaries in China, trying to teach uh, Christianity and the Bible there. And uh, in the early 1920s, uh, he discovered that he had a real talent for running. And he ran the 100-meter dash, the shortest distance they offered at the time, I guess still do in the Olympics. And uh, he um, uh, progressed in his running abilities to the point that he qualified to participate uh, and represent Great Britain in the 1924 Olympics in Paris. 
And upon boarding the ship to get to the Olympics, uh, I guess from uh, Great Britain over to Paris, um, one of the uh, uh, news uh, folks or newspaper writers in the crowd uh, yelled out to him and asked him if he would, uh, if if he was uh, excited about the race that was to come on Sunday. Now Eric was a man of conviction. And uh, he had determined that he would not participate in athletic events on Sunday. That was a day that he considered to be devoted to God. Uh, He had previously not known this. Um, And so uh, once he boarded the boat and discovered the fact that it was indeed on Sunday that the 100-meter heat would be held, he withdrew from the race, what he'd been training for effectively all of his life. And the Prince of Wales, who was on the ship, as well as the head of the British Olympic Committee, uh, pressured and sat down and met with Eric Little and uh, worked on him, uh, belittled him to some degree. They uh, challenged him. They, they tried to befriend him. Then they tried to push him uh, to get Eric uh, to break the resolve that he had to participate in a running event on a Sunday. And Eric was resolved. Eric would not relent. He said he had made up his mind. He will not participate in a day in which he had devoted to his Lord. That's a man who acts with integrity. Uh, This story was later made into a movie, and um, it turns out fairly well for Eric Little. Uh, There was another individual who was representing Great Britain uh, in the 200 and the 400 meter and. uh, Andrew Lindsay was his name, and, and uh, he voluntarily yielded his spot in qualifying for the 400 meters uh, to Eric, um, which is an event four times farther, right, than the 400 meter, and, and not one he was expected to do well in. Uh, and shockingly, Eric won that. Eric died. It may not surprise you to find this out, but this isn't, isn't a part of the movie. Uh, but Eric died in 1945, just 20-some years after the 1924 Olympics. Uh, he had progressed from that Olympics to uh, join his parents as missionaries uh, in China. Uh, he died in prison at the hands of the Japanese. A man who, when everyone knows, was undaunted, unwavering in his resolve to continue following and doing what he knew to be right. And so, what will you do? First, when no one knows, when you believe no one knows what's going on. And what will you do when everyone sees and everyone knows? Will you maintain your integrity? So how about when everything falls apart? And of course, who else could we look at or consider than Job as kind of our prime example of this? Uh, If we looked over in Job, in the very first chapter of Job, uh, we see uh, Job uh, suffering pretty dramatic um, downfall, verse after verse, starting in verse 6 of chapter 1. Um, I didn't mean verse 6, I meant uh, 14. Uh, In verse 14, uh, we see a messenger comes and said, The oxen were plowing and the donkeys feeding beside them, and the Sabaeans attacked and took them. They also slew the servants with the edge of the sword, and I alone have escaped to tell you. A raid here wipes out all the oxen and all the donkey that Job has. In the next verse, we see, uh, that while he was still speaking, another came and said, The fire of God fell from heaven and burned up the sheep and the servants and consumed them, and I alone have escaped 
to tell you now it's fire that destroys the sheep and the servants that were watching them. In the next verse, he says, while he was still speaking, another also came and said, the Chaldeans formed three bands and made a raid on the camels and took them and slew the servants with the edge of the sword. And I alone have escaped to tell you. It's now a raid again by a different army or by a different group of people that raided the camels and the servants that were watching them. And then we have in verse 18, while he was still speaking, another also came and said, your sons and your daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house, and a great wind came from across the wilderness and struck the four corners of the house, and it fell the young people, and they died, and I alone have escaped to tell you. All of, uh, practically speaking, all of Job's earthly possessions, kind of one by one, in dramatic domino fashion, fall apart, get taken away from him, and finally his own children get taken away from him, what was apparently a tornado. And then we see Job's wife's reaction in chapter 2 and verse 9. His wife says to him, Do you still hold fast your integrity? Do you still hold fast your integrity? Curse God and die. And Job, being the man of God that he was, would react as any God-fearing man should. In the very next verse, he says, You speak as one of these foolish women speaks. Shall we indeed accept good from God and not accept adversity? In all this, Job did not sin with his lips. In fact, he praises God. In verse 21, it says, And he said, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I shall return there. Yahweh gave, and Yahweh takes away. Blessed be the name of Yahweh. And through this, Job did not sin, nor did he blame God. And he persisted in this throughout the entire book of Job, toward the very end of the book, when he's speaking with his friends. It says, Then Job continued his discourse and said, As God lives, who has taken away my right, and the Almighty who has embittered my soul, for as long as life is in me, And the breath of God in my nostrils, my lips, will not speak unjustly, nor my tongue mutter deceit. Far be it from me that I should declare you right. Till I die, I will not put away my integrity. Now there's someone with resolve. He's lost all that he had. And he will not turn away from his pursuit of righteousness when he knows to be true in God. My heart does not, re- does not reproach any of my days. Job 21, verse 27. Job would hold fast to his integrity, despite the fact that everything around him had fallen apart. And so, finally, we have the case of when all goes well. Uh, and again, you might say, well, Kyle, I get it, you know, when when no one knows why you might do something that's not right. And maybe, yeah, sure, when everyone knows and they're not the right kinds of people, that might be difficult. Uh, and surely when everything falls apart, that's going to be hard. It's going to be hard to keep doing the right thing when things aren't going well. But, hey, when everything's going well, shouldn't that be the easy time to have integrity? Shouldn't it be the easy time that uh, you know, everything is going well for me and therefore I'll choose to do the right thing? Well, it wasn't the case for a lot of people in history, uh, David being one of them. Um, David uh, uh, was a, a good man uh, by really uh, any measure. Uh, you think for the 
first uh, long number of years that we knew about David, we know about David as a fairly young man, he has this feud with Saul, um, and Saul chases him around the countryside, and uh, David continues to uh, seek the Lord and to overcome um, the uh, pursuit of Saul. Uh, And then we see that David is made king over all of Judah. And then after that, he survives a civil war. And after that, he's made king over all Israel. It says, even from Dan to Beersheba. And then we see that uh, he moves the ark of God to Jerusalem. And then after that, he receives the promises and the covenant with Yahweh God, with Jehovah. And all these things that are happening, these are the you know, good things for David, right? Things that finally settled down for David. Things are, are, are positive for David. Uh, you know, he, um, uh, it seems like, has kind of achieved what he sought out to in life. And that, that moment is when his integrity is tested. It says, then it happened. At the time when kings go out to battle, in 2 Samuel chapter 11 and verse 1, then it happened. It was after 2 Samuel chapter 7. It was after all that uh, shenanigans with Saul. It was after he'd been appointed king. It was after he began reigning from Dan to Beersheba. It was after his kingdom was well established. That's when David's faith, that's when his integrity was challenged. And ironically, despite the fact David had been a man after God's own heart in almost every circumstance of his life prior to that, it was at this occasion that he chose to not live with integrity. And so, What do you choose to do when you have the liberty to choose? And so I just admonish you with some practical invitations to remember that it is, I believe, inevitable that you will encounter difficulty. Difficulty will come. People are like stained glass windows, Elizabeth Kubler said. They sparkle and shine when the sun is out, but when darkness sets in, their true beauty is revealed only if there is light from within. Darkness will set in. That's inevitable. And you can look awfully nice, and your windows can look awfully shiny when there's uh, uh, light shining from without, but it's only if you have integrity, if you have that light from within, will those windows continue to look as bright as as glamorous as what they are. You might think of it in terms of a uh, marathon runner. Uh, You can hide for a long time as a marathon runner, can't you? Uh, You can claim to be really fast and really capable and really good, but the moment of truth will come. The test will come. You'll enter the race, and you'll run the race, you'll compete, and it will be revealed whether or not you were training as well as you said that you were. Uh, It will it will come a day when the test will unveil whether or not you are as what you think you are. The time will come, as it did with David and Bathsheba, as it did for Joseph, as it did for Job, as it did for Eric Little, as it will for you and for me. You know, there's a second definition to the word integrity, and it means to be whole or to be complete. We are in so many ways incomplete in our walk with God if we don't have a very basic principle of integrity, 
of moral uprightness, of a resolve that in whatever circumstance, matters not what circumstance, whatever circumstance we face, we will continue to chart and continue along that narrow path, continue along the way that we know to be right and to be true, and we will be unwavering. And so I encourage you by way of invitation to contemplate your personal integrity. Have you been one who has walked in integrity? Have you been one whose thoughts are consistent with the word and whose speech is consistent with your thoughts and whose action, therefore, is consistent even with your speech? And if you have not, would you repent of that action? Would you change to become one who is?